Welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This is it. This is our last episode of our very first year on the air. And so what we're going to do today is look back over that year. This is a, a year in review episode. You've heard this kind of thing before. Yeah, we're going to talk about some of the high points and low points of our first year doing Elder Sign. We're going to look at some of the common themes and motifs that were in these stories. Uh, and it's really fascinating, actually, how many stories shared common themes and motifs. There's also some stuff that we expected to see in weird fiction and horror stories that we just didn't in this first year that we covered. Uh, we're also going to pick out some favorite passages that demonstrate some craft that we really in- enjoyed by some of these writers. And we're also going to talk about looking forward to next year. It should be a fun and light episode. But before we get into any of these particulars, we would just want to take stock of what it is that we actually covered during 2019. I mean, it's the end of the year. We've kind of forgotten maybe some of the things that we've done. So let's just take a take a look at what we did. In all, we covered 24 stories in 2019. I think this is probably the most stories that we're going to cover until we eventually hit our Patreon goal of doing the show weekly instead of bi-weekly, though we're a very long way from hitting that goal. And two of these stories were novellas that we did over two episodes. That was The Murders in the Rue Morgue by Poe, and then there was The Repairer of Reputations by Robert W. Chambers. But even with 24 stories... A quarter of all of those stories were done by just two writers. Uh, These were H.P. Lovecraft. We did three Lovecraft stories. This was The Statement of Randolph Carter. We did The the Beast in the Cave. And we did The Festival, though I will have to say, of course, that we cheated on The Festival a little bit. By rights, it should have actually aired in January of 2020. But as we said last time, we did bump it forward to do it at Christmas time or as close to Christmas time as we could get it. But then the other writer who also had three stories that we covered was William Hope Hodgson. Uh, we did the, the Haunted Jarvie by him, which was our very first commissioned episode, which was uh, just a real blast to have. We did The Girl with the Gray Eyes, which it turned out was not actually a weird fiction story, <laughs> though it actually was a story that I, I still really loved doing that one. I think about that story often. I really, really liked all of the William Hope Hodgson stuff we covered, but that story was funny and fun, even though it was a rom-com. Yeah, I love that one too. And then the final one we did was the Tideless Sea Part 1. All of those were really fantastic stories. But Brandon, I just want to know if this is what you expected to see when we started the show, that Lovecraft and Hodgson would be sort of the two most frequent writers that they would have gotten the hat trick. Uh, Did you expect to do more Lovecraft episodes than we actually did? I thought we would have ended up doing a few more Lovecraft episodes, but I'm actually really glad we didn't, because I've already read a lot of Lovecraft prior to doing this show with you. I have not read any William Hope Hodgson. I haven't really read Clark Ashton Smith. I've read a little Arthur Machen, but we also got to read Robert Block and Shirley Jackson and some other great writers uh, that I probably would not have sat down and read if not for this show. So I'm really grateful to uh, the patrons who select the stories for us to cover because I got to read a lot of awesome stuff that I think I wouldn't have had the time to come across any other way. So even though it didn't turn out exactly as I expected, my expectations weren't like, if we don't do this, I'll be dissatisfied with the year. Uh, And really, I was so pleased with, with what we got to cover this year anyway. So it all worked out great. Yeah, looking ahead just a little bit in this episode, we are going to pick some least favorite stories. And I was pleased that my shortlist, in fact, frankly, my long list of candidates for story I liked the least was, in fact, 
incredibly short. I liked almost everything that we did this year, but I did expect that we would hit five or six Lovecraft stories. I figured that every time the Lovecraft story was uh, up for selection on these Patreon votes, it was going to win. And that just wasn't the case. Uh, Lovecraft got overlooked. In fact, even the Lovecraft stories, the two Lovecraft stories that did make it on through selection in the, the voting came in last on those poll. So Lovecraft is just not doing very well uh, in the in the votes here. Some other stories that just have not made it in the polls. In fact, these are two stories that have been on every vote we've done this year from the very first because they just keep missing it. This is uh, the, the Mask by Robert W. Chambers. This is the next story in the King and Yellow collection. And then uh, there's a story by Robert Aikman, this uh, great British weird fiction writer of the, the 1950s and 1960s, we'll say, uh, has been languishing as well on the on these ballots. And we'll see if they make it in 2020. But we also did one bonus episode this year. This was another episode that was commissioned. Uh, this is the episode on weird fiction in comics that we did. It was kind of our first topical episode that we'll have more of those to come in 2020 as well. Talking about weird fiction in comics was a lot of fun. We had Brent Halton, who you do the Sandman podcast with, hanging out with the Dream King. And... Brent really knows his stuff. So for anybody who's uh, listening to this episode or just checking us out for the first time, that's a great episode to check out of us just talking about comics we like that highlight some weird fiction elements. And that was really, really fun to do. Yeah. Also, this would be a weird episode to be your first episode of this show, this uh, self-referential and perhaps a little self-congratulatory uh, year-in-review episode. Well, that's uh, all the taking stock that we wanted to do. That's just everything that we that we covered, some, some numbers. I like talking about numbers. Uh, but we're going to move into some qualitative assessments now, and we're going to start on the, the high notes. We're going to start by talking about a, a couple of our favorite stories. We've each picked two, and Brandon, you get the uh, the good job, the fun job of having the first crack here. So, what was your all-time mostest favorite story we did this year? I had a really hard time picking these favorites. There were too many good stories that we covered. There, were, as you said, Glenn, the coming up with a list of like the stories I didn't like was was a much easier job because there were so far fewer of those. But picking the favorites, I, I just found to be challenging. And I think the one that stuck with me the most, uh, which I'll call my favorite, was Purity by Thomas Ligotti. I just thought that was a quiet masterpiece and a brilliant bit of fiction. It's sparked a lot of great conversation on our forums. Uh, People have a lot of other fascinating readings of what's going on. I've learned more about this story than any other story by our audience engagement on it. And it's also just so good. I, I was so close to picking uh, the hot dog scene (laughs) for uh, one of my favorite passages of the year, Uh, but I didn't because I didn't want to gross anybody out. Uh, But Purity, yeah, that's that's the one that is... the most stand out outish to me. Yeah, that didn't make my list or at least didn't make my top two, but it was probably my number three. And you're right. This is the story that has engendered the most conversation on the forum and it's been really fruitful. And it is maybe the story, as you put it, Brandon, that has stuck with me the most. It's, the images are so strong, including that disgusting hot dog bit that that I wish <laughs> would go away. That's the part I wish would go away. But yeah, what a, what a masterpiece of a story. That's been one of the real high points for me uh, uh, Ligotti is someone who I had never read before we started doing this show. You had picked The Frolic in the sort of first batch of stories where you and I were just picking things to kind of get some variety in our first 10 episodes before we moved to the model we're on now where our, our Patreon supporters are picking the stories for us. And The Frolic was fine, but I didn't love that story. And I thought 
gosh, I, I expected more from Ligotti because he's been this figure who has loomed large in my imagination of what weird fiction is now. I've, I've kind of have considered him to be one of the giants of uh, contemporary weird fiction, or at least weird fiction contemporary to my life. So, you know, including the 80s and the, the 90s. And I thought the frolic was fine, but I wasn't wowed by it. But I was wowed by purity. That that did it for me. I, I loved that story. And I was really grateful. That was one that was nominated by one of our, our Patreon supporters. So I was very grateful to have that on there. Yeah, it's such a good story. And The Frolic is is part of Ligotti's first collection that was reprinted by Penguin Classics, uh, sort of after True Detective came out. And, and I remember us talking about the frolic, and you wondered if Ligotti was influenced at all by Arthur, by Arthur Mackin, and uh, I hadn't even thought of that, and I went and looked it up, and it turns out that he had. But Ligotti really sharpens his voice in a way that you can't really see in the frolic by the time he's writing uh, Teatro, Teatro Grotesco, uh, which is the collection that purity is in. And I think for me, when I was reading uh, that Penguin Classics collection that reprinted his first, I think, two short story collections, I felt like a lot of the stories were very derivative and he was kind of finding his way. There's still really good horror stories and weird fiction stories. But I think this other collection uh, that we read purity out of is far and away a better collection. Glenn, what was your favorite story of the year? Well, I'm going to surprise absolutely nobody by going to the 19th century, right? But like you said, Brandon, it was hard to pick these stories. And so what I did was stand in front of my bookshelf a little bit last night and think, if I had an hour right now to be reading instead of preparing for this podcast episode, which stories would I want to read right now before going to bed? And the first one that came to mind for me was The Murders in the Rue Morgue by Edgar Allan Poe. This is a story I've had a lifelong love affair with. I think I've been loving this story since I was in, in middle school. And the things that really appeal to me about this story, and, and maybe really all of Poe, of course, is the dense 19th century prose. That's something that I really just can't ever get enough of. Jane Eyre is actually probably my favorite novel of all time. I just love this style of prose. I also really love Poe's response to the, the rapid changes of industrial society and the inauguration of high modernity, the, the anxieties that he's feeling about the, the growth of cities and the creation of, of globalization and the destabilization of society that's coming from new knowledge and new industries, new types of, of jobs, people migrating and so on. I really enjoyed that aspect of it as well. Of course, also, I just really love detective fiction. In fact, when we were setting up this podcast network, I, I always assumed that one of the book club shows I would start doing at some point, not necessarily with you, Brandon, but was going to be something like the Raymond Chandler Literary Podcast. Uh, now that I know how much work actually goes into doing these shows, I know that that is a very long time coming, <laughs> if ever. But I love detective fiction. I love 19th century prose. So for me, this is just kind of a perfect marriage of those I only didn't pick that story as one of my top two because I knew you were going to, <laughs> to, to pick it and to want to talk about it. I also love the murders in the room work. I think it's an absolutely fantastic story. And that kind of crisis of modernity, as you put it, uh, of, of rapidly shifting societies, once you get into the 20th century, these themes emerge that really come out of that. And and we're going to talk about common themes of, and mo motifs, uh, as we said at the top of the show. Uh, and one of them is madness. And I think that uh, all of these authors are engaged with what this rapidly changing society, uh, industrialization, new types of jobs, 
new types of knowledge like psychology, psychiatry, things like that, what they're all doing to the individual. And uh, I, I can't wait till we, till we talk about that as a theme. But you really see how both detective fiction, weird fiction, maybe even cosmic horror on some level all start off with the murders in the room work. And it's the penultimate story for this podcast. And I'm really glad we did it first. Yeah. And I, I really like the parody that we've got here, the sort of coupling of purity and the murders in the room org as our two favorite stories, because the murders in the room org is about these anxieties of going away from the agricultural society, the agrarian society. That's really been what the world's been for thousands of years and moving to this intense high modern industrial society and all of the changes that come come with that and the, the negative changes in particular that come with that and then purity is actually about what happens when that society collapses in a city right when one of these globalized industries that is the the raison d'etre for the well-being the financial well-being of a community when that goes away what happens to people it's a, it's kind of a one-two punch here well brandon it's i think we're back to you now so what was your other favorite story here well, I was just so surprised by William Hope Hodgson and how much I enjoyed his writing and his stories. And I chose one of uh, the William Hope Hodgson stories, maybe not because it was my second favorite story that we, we read, but it's another one that really stuck with me and got me thinking about genre fiction and craft and writing and the origins of where some of these of where particularly like urban fantasy began. And so I picked the Haunted Jarvie, which is one of the Karnacki uh, ghost finder stories in the collection that we have of the William Hope Hodgson stories. I think it has all of the Karnacki ghost finder stories and it's so much fun. It's such a great idea. You know, the idea of the occult detective is great, but what really stuck out to me at, with this story was the way that William Hope Hodgson has Karnacki use the scientific method to solve a supernatural problem. And to me, that really is the core of what urban fantasy is. All things, whether natural or supernatural, are subsumed by the sort of like rational scientific thinking, you know, and then, you know, the TV show Supernatural is a great example of this, where if you have the right words and the right symbols and things like that, you just have to find the right sort of knowledge. And then once you have that, you can create the formulas and defeat the supernatural evil, uh, or at least maybe deter it in some way, as is what happens in the Haunted RV. But you're at least you're solving a scientific problem uh, and you're not solving a problem of a soul like you see in older ghost stories um you're you're just learning how to defeat it instead of the crisis that created it and that just really stood out to me as a really great example of early urban fantasy or what eventually becomes uh urban fantasy fiction and so i really appreciated reading that story I loved the William Hope Hodgson stories that we read this year as well. And in fact, as I was looking for some favorite passages, I wound up not selecting anything from Hodgson, but I was really drawn to both The Haunted Jarvie and The Tideless Sea Part 1 for his beautiful, just gorgeous descriptions of these seascapes and especially these storms at sea. Hodgson has just a marvelous, just a magical uh, power of of description and makes me feel, even though I've never been out on the open ocean like that, makes me feel as if I'm there with his characters. They're absolutely marvelous. And I really did love when we went to the Haunted Jarvie. I, I didn't 
know that we were going to be talking about the genesis of urban fantasy and sort of really rethinking what urban fantasy is, or at least its origins, right? And, and trying to understand what it is by rethinking its origins. That was one of my favorite episodes that we did. I think it was one of the most important conversations that we had on this show this year. So that was, that's a fantastic pick. Yeah, I, I really love that story. And you're absolutely right that William Hope Hodgson just has a real mastery over writing about the sea and the ocean and seafaring people, you know, sailors and whatnot. Uh, he, he just has it down and it's kind of like a really readable Joseph Conrad in a sense, <laughs> uh, doubled with, you know, genre fiction and, and, and trying to get published for magazines, even though Joseph Conrad was, was a, a house writer, I, I believe at some point for, uh, one of the publication companies and had written, probably what are lost genre pulp novels at this point. Um, but, you know, for me, you know, the two nautical writers that I'm always going to go back to now are William Hope Hodgson and Joseph Conrad. <laughs> <laughs> well, for my, uh, my second story, I've picked one that scratches a particular itch that I have. So I'm selecting The Repairer of Reputations by Robert W. Chambers. It's also, I will say, just no coincidence that I've picked the two novellas. Novellas, probably my favorite uh, word length for a, a story. It's got features of a novel, but only takes as long as, you know, reading two or three short stories, meaning you can read it in sort of one night before bed, but it has all these features of a novel. And in particular, The Repairer of Reputations has elaborate world building, which is something you know you can't do in a short story. And I love world building, right? So I really, really enjoyed this alternate or possibly near future uh, dystopic, maybe, United States of America uh, of the 1920s as imagined in the 1890s. I just loved that world. It really came alive for me. I I thought Chambers had some uh, real imaginative work that went into that, but also had some great powers of description of not just what things looked like, not just, uh, I guess, descriptive passages, but was also really great at at characterization and thinking about the, the effect that the types of of social and political and cultural changes that he's envisioning would have on people's relationships with one another. I found that absolutely awesome. And of course, I also really enjoyed that it has several puzzles inside of it, right? What's real and what's not? Uh, We have to wonder, is Hildred merely delusional or is there really somehow a king in yellow? Is any of this real at all? I mean, we came down on some hard sides on that in the episode, but I think if I went back to that story right now, I might leave it feeling differently than we did when we finished recording our discussion of that story. This is one that I'll want to revisit again and again the rest of my life. Yeah, I was actually sorry to not have been able to reread that as I as I was kind of looking through all of the books trying to pick you know what I would want to sit down and read next that's the one that always comes to mind the repair of reputations is it's such a rich story and it's so fascinating and there are all these elements there's the imagining of the future there is the weird speculative elements you know there's the king in yellow mythos it's such a cool story. It's so good. And that's also one that I'm going to be revisiting as well. So those are the top four that we have picked out for various reasons. Let's talk now a little little bit about the ones that really didn't 
make the list for us. Uh, maybe our least favorites. Glenn, what was the story you liked the least that we read this year? Yeah, for me, this really only came down to two candidates. And I imagine they're going to be the same two candidates for you. So I'll let you talk about which were the candidates. But uh, the story that I just really, really did not like the, the, the most here this year was the Clark Ashton Smith story, The Door to Saturn. Uh, this one isn't this is one that we did fairly recently, and we ragged on it pretty hard in the episode. So I won't belabor the point since we We've done it so recently. But this was a story that was bad in multiple ways. Uh, the, the writing was bad. And I mean, their sentences and paragraphs were just not good. They were just not well constructed. They were ungrammatical. They didn't convey the, the meaning that Smith wanted them to. They sucked the reader out of the story. I mean, really, I just wanted to take my teacher's red pen to that story and just write things like, passive voice, you know, make this active. Uh, this verb is not the verb you're looking for here and and so on. But it also had pretty bad storytelling as we talked a lot about in that episode. The, the plot was confusing. The characters were not particularly engaging. They weren't well fleshed out and nobody had any real motive for doing anything. And all of those problems, those storytelling problems were related and combining that with then just the bad sentences, it made that uh, just kind of a failure of a story even though we had liked other smith that we'd done this year you know quite a bit and i'm looking forward to doing more smith in the future because i always think of clark ashton smith actually as the best wordsmith of the the weird tales big three so this was a real aberration uh, i think you're right glenn we did like the other clark ashton smith stuff that we read this year uh but this this story just had too many problems i think and they all compounded and it was just that one really didn't land for either of us. And I think the other one that probably didn't work for either of us was the authentic narrative of A Haunted House by Sheridan LaFanu. And and this story also didn't work. It's kind of uh, an attempt to write like a found footage haunted house story before there's really film at all. So like, it's a strange genre. It was printed in a newspaper, I believe. Uh, kind of wanted to look a little bit like a news story, but it really couldn't. And the main problem with this story is that, uh, you know, all great ghost stories are also kind of detective stories. And this story just had no active characters who are trying to do anything. Nobody was in any in any real danger. There was no there were no stakes other than some chains rattling and knocking on the walls. And it just didn't really work as a haunted house story, as a ghost story. And it did read like a pretty dry news report. And so to me, this story just didn't work, even though I think it was an inventive technique when Sheridan Lafanu wrote it. Yeah. And again, I'm looking forward to doing another one of his stories this year, maybe several. We'll see how, how people vote on them because he's written some real masterpieces. And even though I didn't like that story either, right, that was the other candidate on my list. And I had to think about which one I liked less and, and, and why. And I think for me, the reason that the door to Saturn stood out uh, even, more, even more so than this uh, Le Fanu story is that I still think that the wordsmithing in the Le Fanu story was, was largely pretty good, even though it is actually rather dry in the sense of being a newspaper account. There were still some sophisticated uh, there was still some sophisticated use of numbers of relative clauses and so on, which was actually something that Smith struggled with was was relative clauses. And so that it seemed more enjoyable to read it, at least on a sentence by sentence level. But we're going to get some good stories from both of these guys, I think, this year or, or next year, 2020. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. I mean, The Door to Saturn was my least favorite story. That That one was a story that I just 
got no pleasure out of reading or thinking about, uh, which is a super harsh thing to say about a story. And and like like we both said, there's some really good Clark Ashton Smith stories to come. Um, but that one was definitely, I think, objectively the worst one we covered. But the authentic narrative of, of, of A Haunted House doesn't have that, uh, didn't fill me with any sense of displeasure or anything like that. It just didn't work as a story for me. Well, I think that's probably enough ragging on stories that we already ragged on for, I think, an hour each. Let's talk about some more favorite elements here. And we've each picked out a couple of favorite passages, just paragraphs or a few sentences that really stuck out to us as we were reading this year. Brandon, you've got the pleasure of going first on this one. And uh, I, I can see the books that you've picked out over here. These are not the ones that I expected. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited for this. Well, I had a really hard time with this uh, with this challenge, actually, because there's not a lot of the type of prose that I would really just want to read aloud in weird fiction and horror. It's just not really a staple of the genre. There's some great examples of technique and style and craftsmanship. Um, but when I think about like a favorite passage, this this was hard for me to come up with. I mean, and I also didn't want to pick Poe because I thought you might be picking him. So (laughs) I I, kind of went through some of the other things that we read to look for passages that I thought were exceptionally beautiful or that demonstrated some sort of technique to me that I was, that I kind of took away. So the first one I'm going to do is from the Ammonite Violin by Caitlin R. Kiernan. And this story is full of lush and beautiful prose. It's a, it's a surreal story. It's almost a, a mental scape, you know, like we talk about landscapes and I just found this really, really gorgeous to read and, and very enjoyable. I liked this story a lot. Uh, but I thought the opening paragraph is just a good example of the prose, and there's some real poetic elements to this as well, so I'll read it. If he were ever to try to write this story, he would not know where to begin. It's that story of a story, so fraught with unlikely things, so perfectly turned and filled with such wicked artifice and contrivances that readers would look away unable to suspend their disbelief even for a page. But he will never try to write it, because he is not a poet or a novelist or a man who writes short stories for the newsstand pulp magazines. He is a collector, or, as he thinks of himself, a collector. He has never dared to think of himself as the collector, as he is not without an ounce or two of modesty, And there must surely be those out there who are far better than he, shadow men, and maybe shadow women too, haunting a busy, forgetful world that is only aware of its phantoms when one or another of them slips up and is exposed to flashing cameras and prison cells. Then people will stare, and maybe, for a time, there is horror and fear in their dull, wet eyes, but they soon enough forget again. They're busy people after all, and they have lives to live and jobs to show up for five days a week and bills to pay and secret nightmares all their own. And in their world, there is very little time for phantoms. Uh, there's so much in this paragraph that I just think is, is beautiful in prose, but primarily, uh, apart from just the rhythm of the sentences, there is so much uh, consonance in the sounds that it just reads like a poem. And I just love this opening paragraph of this story. 
Really strong images in that opening as well. And really, I mean, just even to think of that as the opening of that story is so impressive, so amazing. And Kuna makes this really amazing move there in which she reminds us as readers that we are reading a story right now, which is maybe not always the best thing to do in terms of of wanting to get your reader to be engaged in the story. But she plays this nice trick on us where she gets us thinking about stories in general, stories as a, a thing that exists in the world and the, the role of stories in our lives, but also realizing that our lives are stories in, in some sense, or at least that we can craft the episodes of our lives into stories if we wish, but that that's not something that everybody does, that there are specific people, types of people who do exactly that. And it's just not the way that we all think about our lives. And then this paragraph runs through features of people's daily lives and contrasts storytelling with the mundanity of paying bills and then gives us this primary character, the main character of this story, or at least, you know, one of the two characters of this story as someone who's sort of in the middle there, right? Someone who isn't mundane, but is not mundane in this awful, horrifying way. It's a beautiful and brilliant paragraph there. Yeah, and the whole story reads like that. I don't think there's a weak sentence in The Ammonite Violin. Though the story might not be to everybody taste, everybody's taste, I just think it's a, an excellent, excellent piece of fiction and writing, and I'm really glad we got to read that uh, for this podcast this year. Glenn, which passage came to your mind when you thought about favorite passages? Well, I actually did not pick Poe or Chambers. I didn't pick passages (laughs) from either of my favorite stories. And actually, I I know that you didn't either. I wanted to hit some more variety, though, as much as I love Poe. I am sticking with the 19th century for the the first passage that I want to read. And this is going back uh, not quite to our first story, but to the third story that we did. This is from Lost Hearts by M.R. James, who's the only James story we did this year. And uh, James also has sort of struggle to actually get votes on the on the the Patreon polls, but we'll see how he does next year. And this is not quite the first paragraph of the story, but it is part of the the opening of the story. I think you and I are often drawn to to openings uh, above all else. And so this is the description of Asworthy Hall as Stephen uh, arrives to to kick off the story here. An evening light shone on the building, making the window panes glow like so many fires. Away from the hall, in front, stretched a flat park studded with oaks and fringed with firs, which stood out against the sky. The clock in the church tower, buried in trees on the edge of the park, only its golden weathercock catching the light, was striking six, and the sound came gently down the wind. It was altogether a pleasant impression, though tinged with the sort of melancholy appropriate to an evening in early autumn, that was conveyed to the mind of the boy who was standing in the porch, waiting for the door to open to him. There's so much that I love about this paragraph as well. I mean, there are multiple senses, right? We get both sight and sound here. But these two senses get mixed in with the emotion that Stephen feels. And the way that James writes this, right, is to uh, ascribe the emotion itself to the environment as if emotions themselves are actually a type of sense that we have, that, uh, that emotions are a way that we sense the world around us, not that they're just something that's internally driven, which is a very interesting concept. And it makes for a really eerie way of describing what should actually just be a very pleasant evening in, in early autumn, as he says, but uses this melancholy here, which is awesome. But on top of all of this, this paragraph has just fantastic verbs, right? We get studded, fringed, tinged, 
shown. It's just, and, and it goes on, right? That's only like half of the good verbs that are here. This is just a repository of great wordsmithing of everything is active except for one clause here in this paragraph. Everything is active and all of those actions are ascribed to elements in the the scenery around the hall. It's just, this is how you should do descriptive writing. What, what are the real values of using all these active verbs and clauses and to keep this paragraph feeling so active, like the environment is active, is that you give your setting a sense of life without having to describe, you know, people walking in like around a park or something like that by, by building a really strong setting right off the bat in a story, you are giving the reader a place for them to live and to kind of hang onto while they're reading the rest of the story. And and there's only a handful of writers that I've ever read that do this all fully to my satisfaction. Uh, and I, this MR James example is fantastic. Uh, I also think Neil Stevenson does this exceptionally well at times. Uh, but TH white is the one that stands out to me the most as just building these lively settings in just a paragraph or two where you can just live in for the remainder of the book. And it's always a reminder to me as I try to, you know, as I write to try to make the setting feel so alive that the reader doesn't question anything else that's going to happen in the story. That's a great example of both craft and technique uh, from M.R. James. Yeah, and of course, this is exactly the sort of thing that Gene Wolfe does so masterfully in his short stories as well, is give us real thick description with real strong verbs to make the environment, make the setting of the story come alive and really stand out. And then we don't need that anymore. We don't need any more of that for the rest of the story. We're just there and has just gotten us in you know six or seven sentences. And it's, it is absolutely fantastic. It was such a delight to read that story. But I can see the next book that you've got over here, Brandon. And, and this is not a story that I thought was going to show up here on, on this list. So what is your next favorite passage? Yeah, I didn't really think I was going to read anything from this book either uh, or from this story. But as I was flipping through everything that we covered, I, I came across this short paragraph that just demonstrated a technique that I really love in harder. And it's going to kind of help us talk about some of the themes and motifs when we when we get to them. So kind of a double whammy, maybe not the most beautiful descriptive paragraph, uh, but a good way to write a mental state. And this comes from Lucy Comes to Stay by Robert Block, which is a story about a woman who has uh, kind of a breakdown of some kind and creates this imaginary friend who then goes on to kill some people. Not spoiling too much by the story. If you've seen Psycho, you get some of the trick that Robert Block is using in Lucy Comes to Stay. There are a lot of great technique and craft elements to this story. We talked in our episode about this, about the light shining on objects, uh, the descriptions of alcoholism that Robert Block does so well. But I wanted to read this paragraph because it's a great way to do run-on sentence when you're doing a mental, when you're writing about mental states and you're trying to get inside the mind of somebody who is mad, who is stricken by madness. Uh, one of the ways to do that is to write long sentences. But I think what Robert Block does so well here is keep such a coherent thread through this exceptionally long sentence. And that's what I really want to highlight here. So this is this is the uh, paragraph slash sentence. Uh, it's one of the longest paragraphs of the story, actually. Uh, so I'm just going to read it here. I lay down on the bed and then I was sleeping. 
Really sleeping for the first time in weeks. Sleeping so the scissors wouldn't hurt my eyes. The way George hurt me inside when he wanted to shut me up in the asylum so he and Miss Higgins could make love on my bed and laugh at me the way they all laughed, except Lucy, and she would take care of me. She knew what to do. Now I could trust her when George came, and I must sleep and sleep, and nobody can blame you for what you think in your sleep or do in your sleep. It's a great sort of just paragraph. You do lose the thread a little bit, but like the thread of consciousness a little bit, but it's all there together. And it's also uh, foreshadows kind of what the real plot of the story. She can't be blamed for what she does in her sleep. Uh, And I just thought it was a good example of kind of getting into that mind space that uh, you want if your narrator is actually insane or suffering from some other weird fiction affliction that comes up a lot. Yeah, I think this is probably the only real instance of something akin to stream of consciousness that we we did all year. I don't know that the genre is really known for stream of consciousness writing, but certainly that's a style of writing that was extraordinarily popular, or at least extraordinarily influential at the time that Block was really getting going in his career. And it's really great that he he takes that and sort of moves that into writing a, a horror story about mental illness or possibly demonic possession. I'm not sure we really ever settled on, on one or the other when we, when we covered that story. But it also just kind of sings, right? There's uh, You can really feel the, the, the cadence of the thoughts of the, the protagonist of this story. And that lets us get into her mind and lets us really empathize with her, even if we don't quite sympathize with her. It is actually an extraordinary bit of writing. I had kind of forgotten that that story actually had good writing because I think we did sort of think of it as kind of a dry run for Psycho and as kind of a a slight story. Though I'm looking forward to doing more Robert Block in the future as well. Yeah, there's so much Robert Block stuff out there, and and I'm sure we'll get more of his stories. But if, you know, people like Psycho, he wrote a ton of movies in like the 60s and 70s for I think it was Hammer or Cannon or one of those one of those uh you know schlock factories that that put out a lot of movies and they're all kind of fun. I mean they're all a little bit the same in some ways. He he was really working with only a few themes, but he's a solid writer of horror and I and I was glad to read him sort of apart from all of that uh for for the podcast this year. Glenn, what was your second passage that you chose. So I wasn't sure I was going to get to do this one because I just somehow thought that you were going to pick it. And maybe it's just because I loved it so much that I wanted to be the one to read it. And, you know, that that thing that happens when you want something so bad, you assume everyone else must want it just as much as, as you are. There's probably some name for, for that. Psychologists probably have some name for that. Uh, but I'm going to take us back to Purity by Thomas Ligotti. This is the description of the, the neighborhoods. This is a passage that uh, I read on that episode and we talked about at length. But this is something that is going to stick with me forever. I'm always going to be able to just close my eyes and see what it is that Ligotti is describing, but also even to see the words that he's using to do it. I think this is just an absolutely breathtaking passage. So here we go. To be precise, my friend did not live in the bad neighborhood where my family had rented a house, but in the worst neighborhood nearby. It was only a few streets away, But this was the difference between a neighborhood where some of the houses had bars across their doors and windows, and one in which there was nothing left to protect, or to save, or to care about in any way. It was another world altogether, a twisted paradise of danger and derangement, of crumbling houses packed extremely close together, of burned-out houses leaning toward utter extinction, of houses with black openings where once there had been doors and windows, and of empty fields over which shone a moon that was somehow different from the one seen elsewhere on this earth— 
there is a lot to love about this. Uh, even just this this last bit here, which is all really kind of breathless and actually has a really great use of ellipses. It has some real alliteration going on as well that just makes it poetical. And it's actually something that the description rather builds towards. It builds towards this use of poetic mode here in the description, even as it is also moving towards the idea that maybe something fantastical or something speculative is going on. That is just some beautiful craft there. But I also really love that there is this critical social observation that is really, I think, something that's at home in hard-boiled detective stories. And here it is in this weird fiction story. But also Ligotti writes this description of this crumbling urban landscape, which, you know, as we said, this is a story we've talked a lot about in the Forbes. I think we all we recognize now that this is Detroit that's being described here. But he writes about this crumbling Detroit as if he's describing a natural landscape. And usually when you're describing a natural landscape, you're describing what's beautiful about it. And here he's describing what's horrid about this urban landscape here. But using that same technique, I think doubly emphasizes that. And I just think this is just a masterful piece of writing that's going to stick with me forever. And what makes it really work is the voice of this boy who was describing this really without judgment. It's only the reader who knows that this is horrible. For the boy, this is almost a matter of course. It's a comment without judgment. It is a gorgeous description. And I love uh, at the end of the paragraph talking about uh, the the otherworldly moon, almost as though he's going into fairy. You're getting this weird description of something that's almost nature. But there's definitely these liminal boundaries that the narrator is moving through that you recognize as a reader if you know the cues to look for if you're reading a fairy story. And so that is another element of this story that Ligotti just weaves in, again, without giving the reader really any handrails to to guide them through the story. You're just getting all of these wonderful elements. And that that passage is certainly a highlight of purity. Uh, but that whole story, uh, you know, it was my favorite for the year. It's just such a good story. Yeah, it's something that's occurred to me while we're talking about this passage, that even though I didn't pick purity as one of my two favorite stories, purity is the story that fills me with envy. It's the story I wish I could write. Murders in the Rue Morgue is not a story I read and go, ah, oh, I wish I'd written that story. Uh, Repair of Reputations, same thing. But purity, I read that story and I weep a little bit because I'm never going to write a story that good. Well, now we're going to talk about some of the some of the lessons we learned uh, throughout the year recording Elder Sign. We've done a lot of podcasts covering Gene Wolfe. We've done a lot of podcasts covering other things uh, for our Patreon page. Uh, but we're going to talk about some things that we learned from recording weird fiction. So Glenn, uh, you get to go first on this one. Yeah, I'm going to actually bring us back here to The Door to Saturn by Clark Ashen Smith, which for being a story I didn't like, it's actually the story I think I'm going to end up talking about the most on this episode. It's coming up again in one more section that we're going to do here today. But this story, you know, even though I didn't like it, part of why I didn't like it is because it was like looking in a dark mirror, right? Just even as I just said that purity is the type of story I wish I was capable of writing. The Door to Saturn, I think, really bothered me because it's the type of story I write 
most often. And all of the things that I didn't like about the story are things that I don't like about my own writing tendencies, right? So I, maybe that's also part of why I was so hard on it in that episode, in this episode too, right? Right. But the big thing here, that, and then I need to be told again and again, so maybe this will be the lesson I learned also when we do our 2020 year in review episode, is you have to kill your darlings sometimes, right? The, the idea that you have that generates the story you're writing, uh, sometimes that just has to go. Sometimes that's your discovery. That's your gateway to the story that you're actually telling. And you've got to get rid of the thing that is the inciting genesis in your mind of what the story is, how it got going, or the the idea, the funny thing you thought of. Wouldn't it be cool if a story was about X and then you write a story that's about X, Y, and Z and it turns out X doesn't need to be there. And that was a big thing that we we harped on with The Door to Saturn is that all of the, the the hyperborean frame simply does not need to be there at all and i think really you know for us especially since you and i write stories in a shared universe i think the real lesson here too is also just don't work so hard to build connections within that shared universe or you know across your mythos or whatever language you're using for that if something is not serving this story then it doesn't belong in this story, at least if you're writing short stories, if you're writing novels, even if you're writing novellas, you can do some more of these things, but you can't do this in a, a seven page or even a 12 page short story. So if it's not serving this plot, if it's not serving this story, it needs to go no matter how much you love it. I get into trouble with that all the time. It, it takes me probably three drafts before I even realize who the main character of the story is that I'm, <laughs> that I'm writing sometimes. And it's, it's crazy, you know, because you get stuck on what you're trying to achieve or uh, what genre the story is in. Sometimes you just don't know. Sometimes you do and you hit it out of the park. You know, in that first, you have a first draft that you can just edit into something really great. But for the majority of the time, revising and rewriting is the only way to write a story. And sometimes I'll start a story and end up with, uh, you know, a paragraph I can keep or a character that can go somewhere. I have to change point of view often. And I think you're right that we saw in the door to Saturn that the original idea for the story just didn't serve this story. And really no plot element of the door to Saturn served the story at the end of the day. Kind of thinking about writing and my own uh, tendencies, as I just said, you know, where I, I can't find the main character. I mean, that really jumped out to me. Uh, with the La Fanu story is sometimes you do want to subvert the genre. You want to be clever. You want to write something fresh. But if you do it in such a way where there's nothing for the readership to identify with or cling to, or it doesn't have any familiar elements of the genre that you that you really love or are trying to write in, um, you're going to have a rough time selling that story or even going back and rereading it and enjoying it. So reading some of these stories, especially the early Lovecraft stories, what jumps out to me the most is the need to to reread your own work as a stranger. You have to almost encounter it without any knowledge of the ideas that you had when you wrote it, if you're doing a lot of your own editing. And you can see the germ of the ideas in, in especially early Lovecraft, uh, in, in some of these Lafanu stories and in some Clark Ashton Smith as well, that you know what they were thinking, but not what they were writing. And I think, you know, for me, that really just sharpened some of my own technique is is to write in such a way that the audience knows exactly what you're writing, not 
so that they have to guess what you th- were thinking about when you were writing it. And I think weird fiction and horror, uh, maybe some writers in these genres, some of the stories you read are the worst defenders of this that you've come across. <laughs> well, this happens in my academic writing all the time, too. In fact, especially sometimes when you're with academic writing, I mean, you're editing stuff that you wrote literally years ago, and you don't remember even what you were thinking. And the fact that you'd left out some connective tissue between ideas, <laughs> man, you can just start going back through some notebooks and hoping you've got better notes <laughs> uh, than you remember remember having. Well, that was all we wanted to talk about with writing craft. But we, we also want to have a conversation about some of the common themes and, and motifs and elements that cropped up in our uh, quasi-random selection of stories that we covered this year. I think this is a pretty fun game to just kind of see what we what connections we find, uh, you know, among these stories that we didn't really pick in any particular way. And Brandon, you're going to talk uh, about the the first one here, which is madness or I- insanity, which did come up all over the place. In fact, probably more places than I even remember it coming up. That's right. It turns out that about a quarter of the stories that we read, so eight out of the 24 or so deal with madness explicitly or people going mad and and the stories that I read that deal with this are the frolic lucy comes to stay the insanity of jones the repair of reputations the statement of randall randolph carter the ammonite violin purity and the festival really uh Beast in the Cave, maybe you could make a case for if you really wanted to. I don't want to really talk about that story anymore, so I'm not going to bring it up. Um, and there and there could be more, but these ones really explicitly deal with madness on the surface level of the story. Uh, though I think a lot of weird fiction has a sort of subterranean exploration of madness. But it's it's just striking to me how much weird fiction is caught up in this exploration of madness or mental health issues and the the thing that is most common to me apart from madness sort of the the subcategory that jumped out to me as i was looking uh through these stories and thinking about them is that the thing that makes people seem the most mad in these stories is their inability to conform to all of these shifting norms that they're encountering and what weird fiction does that's different than say like dramatic fiction or literary fiction or something like that is put you in the place of the character in an empathetic place, at least of the character who cannot conform. And as a result of their inability to conform, these characters all sort of fixate on some new God or idol or something that gives them really the permission to act however they wish to. But in weird fiction, all these people are mad because they serve something, you know, an idea or a person or a God that demands their loyalty in some way that's non-normative. And and you use the phrase dark mirror before Glenn, and it's sort of a a, a, a dark mirror to our own society that should ask should cause us to ask questions about social norms that we all are loyal to in order to keep the peace with one another, to live in a culture and a civilization. These are not bad things. Uh, but weird fiction kind of holds up this mirror to it in, in a lot of ways. And, you know, so in the frolic, we have a psychiatrist whose patient is apparently mad, uh, but that patient is fully committed to the notion that they live in a cosmic horror universe. And he believes maybe he's some sort of ancient being. And this might be proven out by the end of the story that the patient's beliefs about himself are true. And the psychiatrist is wrong in the ammonite violin we the one of the two protagonists worships the sea in in a very strange and dark way 
uh, impurity, we have characters trying to do away with all ideas and beliefs and norms that cause, you know, impurities. But these impurities are norms for the rest of us and they're ideas we all share and have in common, ways we identify with one another and form groups and communities. Um, and, and, you know, maybe one thing that's going on is that these writers are looking at the impact that psychology has had on the 20th century and late 19th century and are interrogating the question of whether or not conformity to norms is really all that we should be seeking from one another, all that we can have from each other in the relationships that we do have with one another. Um, But also given the rise of totalitarianism in the 20th century, maybe the theme of madness here or this kind of radical nonconformity or radical loyalty to to something that's not normal um, is really meant to call into question something like at what level does an individual as an actor in society get labeled as insane or mad? Because at at some certain level, you are feared if you declare that you want to harm yourself, harm others as a result of an alternative belief in how the world works, a commitment to uh, a different type of ideological system. But we often don't raise these questions for people who are very wealthy or at the, who are at the top levels of the political world. So there's this kind of, I think we also saw this real m- sort of primarily middle class uh, sorts of protagonists in these stories and looking at the world from that way of the types of things you're supposed to be committed to in, st- in order to stay in the middle class and how these pe- none of the characters that uh, we came across in any of these stories were able to to do that. So, you know, that could also be stating that there's a level to which you can't afford to not conform. And that's another thing some of these writers are investigating. Or, you know, as in the Ammonite violin or Lucy Comes to Stay, you have to hide all of your dark habits until the moment comes when you reveal your true self, which is a problem we saw kind of in the uh, early 2000s with these sort of shooting sprees and then people killing themselves, uh, which is that they acted out their full commitment to their beliefs and then never had to deal with consequences. And that's a hallmark of horror fiction is people acting out and then not having to deal with consequences. So yeah, I know that this isn't necessarily a super coherent argument and it's really meant to open the conversation. Um, but th- this really just jumped out to me uh, when, when thinking about madness as a theme or a motif in all of these stories. And I hope, you know, we can hear more uh, after Glenn, Glenn response here, um, a little bit more chatter on the forums about, you know, what our listeners heard us talk about with regard to madness in the 19th and 20th century as a theme of weird fiction and horror fiction. Well, I really like that you, you point out how, how oppressive the idea of, of conformity and, and fitting in are in these stories. And one of the stories that we read this year that really stuck out to me, and in fact, I thought that I was probably going to pick a passage from this as one of my favorite passages, but ultimately decided not to because the story was so unsettling. And that was the insanity of Jones. I love Algernon Blackwood. In fact, there's an Algernon Blackwood story on the the poll that is active right now as we're recording this episode that would be a lot of fun to look at. I did not expect, though, that we were going to be looking at a story about workplace gun violence from the long 19th century. I was really taken aback by this. And I'll say that my wife was too. You know, she listens to the show, like probably most of our listeners, uh, on her commute to, to work. And, and she and I both work in environments where there's a high 
incident of, of gun violence, which is to say schools. And so this is something that is on our mind. We get emails about security, especially at the start of semesters. We have drills and so on. And you know, the, upon coming home from a, a long day of teaching, this was the first thing she wanted to talk about as we were making dinner together in the kitchen was being so surprised, but so taken aback that this idea that this was going to be a problem that people would have, you know, goes back to these early moments in high modernity. I think we tend to think of this as a problem of our now and not a problem of inventing uh, the system of industrial society and industrial global capitalism. But, but there it is. And Jones just has trouble existing in this society and it erupts in him it breaks him and erupts in this violence and and that this is a story that's going to stand out to me and always makes me uncomfortable to think about yeah i thought about that story a lot as i was uh thinking about how to talk about madness in the eight stories that it really came up with on the surface and the insanity of jones is just a heartbreaking story and it really highlights more than concerns about you know workplace violence and gun violence in society, the dangers of building a society around the individual instead of around small communities or familial connections and things like that. This is a man who had nobody to challenge his views or opinions until it was way too late. He was able to sit alone and create the world outside of his mind and then he chose to live in that world. And one of the benefits of a shared civilization, one of the benefits of communities is that people don't really get to do that uh, because they're challenged in some ways and they have to learn to adjust and, and because they're getting some benefit from being a member of a community, whether it's a church or a bowling league. And, and we've talked a lot about the breakdown of community in the 20th century, I think both through both Elder Sign and in the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast. And I think a lot of these weird fiction authors, more than anybody else, are, and and it could be because they're sort of uh, sometimes strange, isolated creatures themselves, uh, write about the real fears and dangers that isolation brings and being addressed purely as an individual can bring in this kind of high modern world that they're writing about. A lot of these stories highlight how we as individuals respond to change around us, change that often we don't feel like we have any agency in. It's change that we feel is happening to us or is happening to the world in which we live in. And we have to live in that change, whether we want to or not. And I'm thinking here, especially of the repairer of reputations in which there's this cultural change, this massive cultural change in the world that Chambers envisions of the the 1920s, the the near future, that's different from the 1890s in which he's writing it, but is looking at the society that emphasizes power and strength through violence and also being in the right identity cast to be someone who can have power and, and wield authority in society, and then tells us this story about someone who goes mad with delusions of having that kind of power, someone who actually has no real access to that power or avenue to it, but is in this culture that tells him that's what we value, that's what we're about, but then you as an individual have no means of getting that, and then creates this delusion of the king in yellow in which he can have some avenue to power. And in fact, all the power that other people have has been stolen 
from him and he's going to take it back. And so this just, you know, but we could also envision a society in which the the value that the government, the state is telling people to have is not power and order and authority, but is happiness, contentment, kindness, charity. What would have happened to Hildred Castain in that society in a culture with those values and, and those virtues rather than the one in which he is living? Yeah, it's a great question. And and like I said, I mean, this is really meant to open the door on the conversation. And I'm sure there's a lot that, that we didn't catch in these stories with regards to madness. But I think it's, uh, you're, you're absolutely right to point out, Glenn, that it's, these characters also represent kind of the underside of being unable to access the stuff they're told to want. And you know, for most of us today, that's being addressed as a consumer. What happens when you can't get consumer goods? What happens to your mind? What happens when your phone is 10 feet away from you or and turned off and your laptop is in another room? Uh, you know, the sorts of ways in which we're addressed by our culture, there's always a dark side to that. And there's always people kind of falling out the bottom. And what weird fiction shows us is what those people might be thinking, what motivates them, um, because not everybody has the means to participate in the culture and civilization they're born into. And this has always been the case. So yeah, so a lot of food for thought here with with a bunch of these stories. And all the stories are really looking at the dark underside of society. The lottery is a great example of that as well. But I think we were expecting at the beginning of the year to kind of come across a lot of things in weird fiction and horror fiction that we just didn't see in the stories that we covered this year. So Glenn, you're going to talk about the things that we expected to see, but didn't really appear in the stories we read. Right. I did definitely expect to see madness. That's a huge part of weird fiction. But I did not anticipate that it was going to be a third or maybe even a little more than a third of of the stories that we cover. That is disproportionately high. But disproportionately low were the stories that deal with monsters in, in any way, right? We had no monsters from space or other dimensions, right? We didn't have any old ones or elder gods at, at all. Uh, there were no cosmic monsters. We didn't even have any weird but perfectly terrestrial monsters such as the Wendigo. We didn't have any of those either. There was no stories of strange evolution in a remote area. Right? These are things that I think of as real staples of weird fiction. We just didn't encounter them at all. To the extent that we had monster stories at all, these were from the Tideless Sea Part 1 by, by William Hope Hodson. I mean, there is a monster in that story, but it's a real animal. There's not anything necessarily weird about it. It's just not something that most of us are going to encounter because we don't live in the environment that that monster or that animal lives in. And the other one, of course, is The Murders in the Rue Morgue by Edgar Allan Poe, right? I mean, you know, if we're going to count the orangutan as a monster, and I think probably we should in that context. Context. We can all go see orangutans at the zoo, as I talked about probably at too much length in that episode. <laughs> uh, but, you know, in the 1840s, this would have been something that was monstrous that, you know, certainly hadn't seen a photograph of. Most people certainly would not have seen a real one. And so I think it would have qualified as a monster there. And, uh, you know, we did have some ghosts, though, right? It wasn't a, it was not a year entirely devoid of supernatural or preternatural antagonists or phenomena. But we really just didn't see that much of it. Yeah, it was really surprising 
to me that that this stuff didn't really come up. I guess we have aliens or alien type things in uh, the stories that take place on other planets, like Door to Saturn or or like Planet of the Dead. Yeah, but the real horror of these stories are of the majority of these stories are like strange societies, strange practices, strange rituals. I guess we had one sort of cursed object story with Casanetto's last song, but the horrors were all man-made or the tricks of the mind or an inability to cope with living in society. And I just don't think I really expected that (laughs) when we started reading this. I definitely thought there was going to be more kind of over horror elements, which just haven't come up. Well, what also is really missing from 2019 is mythos stories, right? This is a massive part of weird fiction. In fact, I would say that there are a lot of people who think that mythos fiction and weird fiction, uh, that that Venn diagram is 100%, though. It's sort of the MO of our show is to say, no, that's not that's not the case. Hold on. Let's look at some of the other aspects of weird fiction. But we only had two mythos stories this whole year. The Repairer of Reputations by Robert W. Chambers was one of them. This is you know the first story in the King and Yellow mythos, or just the, the yellow mythos, if you prefer. And then, yeah, I would say The, the Door to Saturn by Clark Ashton Smith qualifies, right? Sathagwa is, is there. Uh, that's a huge part of the mythos, as we talked about in that episode. But mythos stories and, and even mythos writers writing non-mythos stories really struggle to get votes on our ballots this year, except for Clark Ashton Smith, who's the, the only one of them who actually succeeded on the very first vote. The Door to Saturn was, was heavily voted for, actually. But Lovecraft and Howard have really struggled. Uh, we even wound up doing The Phoenix on the Sword by Robert E. Howard as a, a Patreon episode because it just didn't quite make it onto the, the main show, onto Elder Sign itself. That next yellow mythos story, The Mask, has been languishing on the ballots the entire year as well. But really, maybe it's actually not that much of a surprise because our Patreon supporters for the bulk of this year have been Gene Wolfe fans and Star Trek fans. But we have now actually just over the last month or two really started to get some Patreon supporters whose primary show on the network is this one. It's Elder Sign. So we should actually start to see some bit of tip toward the Weird Tales brand of weird fiction in 2020. Though, you know, I'm looking forward to when we do our 2020 year in review episode and see if that really is borne out (laughs) by the numbers or not. But that's my prediction that we're going to have at least a little bit more of that in the year to come. Yeah, it would be nice to see. I think think we'll have a really good time looking at the early creation of mythos and shared universes that some of these writers were sharing some of the old ones or some of the concepts and looking at the overlap as they're really getting going as writers trying to sell more stories to magazines and coming up with ways to do it which is to say oh people liked this story about this i'm going to write another one like it using the same old one or ritual or group of people or whatever so i'm excited to see the mythos really develop in 2020 or 2021 it's going to give us a lot of food for thought and a lot of things to talk about. Well, and, and and speaking of mythos stories, I want to talk a little bit more about the door to Saturn as well. That was actually one of our longer episodes. It was well over an hour for what was an extraordinarily short, short story. But because actually we recorded for so long and we went so deep into talking about writing craft, we actually didn't get around to as much depth on one of the topics that I wanted to address when we did that discussion. And so I want to have a little, I don't know, 
not corrections, but I guess additions section here to, to talk about some of the things that, or really maybe just one of the things that Smith was doing in that story that I, that I actually really quite appreciate. And I feel like I want to say in particular in this episode to kind of leave the door to Saturn uh, on, a, on a higher note than I've often talked about it. And, and that's to say that the, the central feature of that story, I think, is the blemphoim, these headless people. And this is not something. This is not an idea that Smith himself has made up. And in fact, he's taken it specifically from John Mandeville's Book of Marvels and Travels, which is a a medieval travel book. It was written in probably the 1350s or the 1360s. It's a a fantasy travelogue about a totally imaginary journey to Asia and all of the made-up fantastical things that he encountered there. And this includes headless people exactly like the the Blemphoim. Mandeville himself has taken this from a very long tradition uh, in Western literature. In fact, headless people living out on the, the fringes of society, uh, the fringes of the known world, uh, goes back even to our earliest bits of literature in the, the Western uh, literary tradition. But Mandeville is specifically important to Smith, right? The, the, the appearance of these headless people in both works here is not a, a, a accidental parallel. Smith absolutely loved John Mandeville's travel log here. This kind of medieval fantasy novel is basically what it is. It's one of his favorite books. He actually wrote a story called The Tale of Sir John Maunderville, uh, aka The Kingdom of the Worm. This is a story that was published in The Fantasy Fan in 1933. I'm sure we'll take a look at that story someday. And so really, we should think of The Door to Saturn as another small bit of Mandeville fan fiction about a journey to a strange place. And I wanted to add to before we leave this story behind and go to 2020 is that in Mandeville, in fact, when he is writing about his headless people, those headless people have an association with Saturn. It's not actually something that Mandeville makes a big deal about in the text, but it's there. And so you can see that, you know, that probably actually is the real germination of this story for Smith. He wanted to write about a, a story that's like John Mandeville, but set in space, which is what you would do when you're living in a world that is totally known. Where are the unknown parts? Right. And that accounts for the uh, style of the tale, the door to Saturn as a picaresque, which, you know, travelogues really are. That's their picaresques. And the door to Saturn is also one. And I, and I think that just speaks to the what we've already been talking about with this story, which is you know, the germ of the idea isn't always what you have to run with. If what you're trying to do is write a picaresque on a foreign planet, you have problems you need to solve. How do the characters get there? What do they do when they're there? Who do they encounter? How do they survive? Uh, All those questions are sort of answered in the door to Saturn, but what is left undone is an actual plot. So uh, as a bit of travel fiction, as a bit of kind of a a riff on this old uh, travelogue, I think the door to Saturn works. It's definitely put it in a new light for me, but just coming into it blind, I, I'm still going to have trouble with that story. Well, again, I think that was always our criticism of of the door to Saturn is that the, the plot artifice uh, is flimsy. The idea of, hey, check it out. I'm in a weird place. There's weird stuff. And I'm uh, looking at it and telling you about it. That's cool. I'll read that story all day. It was actually the attempt to answer those questions that undermines that story. And I think maybe there the real lesson is make it as simple as possible. And you know we complained about that in the episode, so we don't need to belabor it anymore. But I do want to say that there is something richer here that Smith is doing in this story than perhaps we gave him credit for. And I think that will be it. We will hold our peace on the door to Saturn now. We'll let Smith have uh, a better day uh, in in uh, the episodes to come. 
And speaking of episodes to come, we're near the end of this episode, so we just want to look ahead to 2020. But before we do that, we want to thank everyone for the, just the absolutely awesome and huge support that we had in 2019. That's writing reviews, sharing news about our episodes and the existence of the podcast on your social media, I mean, retweets and so on. All of that was just tremendously heartwarming and a huge help for us. We really want to thank our forum participants as well. We had some lively conversations on the forum. And in fact, a lot of what we've talked about here in this episode generated initially on the forum, including realizing that madness was something that we were getting a disproportionately high dosage of in the stories that we selected. But finally, we especially want to thank our Patreon supporters. Uh, Without you, the show would not exist. You keep the lights on over here. You keep us going uh, every week, uh, recording podcast episodes. And we're so grateful that you let us do this for you. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing uh, when we look back on the year and see all the support we've received and all the people who have told other people about our podcast network, uh, Glenn, as you've said, who've reviewed us on iTunes and and tweeted us and retweeted us or just helped get the word out. And and we hope you'll continue to do that, uh, whether you can support us financially or not on Patreon, letting more people know about the podcast, getting more people to engage with us. That's why we do this. And we love it. So thank you to all the people who supported us in 2019, both as patron supporters, as people who engaged with us on the forums, and also as people who just got the word out, the kind of quiet supporters who told their friends about us. We appreciate you all. Thank you so much for listening to us. We hope to bring more of you in to 2020 to listen to our show. Glenn, what are we what are we going to be moving towards in 2020? What are we going to do on this show? Yeah, so one of the things that really we tried to do here in 2019 was to cover as much as we possibly could. We wanted to make sure that we covered a lot of authors and a lot of of stories. But this coming year, we're going to do more stories that will take more than one episode to cover. We really put a moratorium on that, except for the murders in the Rue Morgue and the repair of reputations. But in 2020, we're going to have more stories on the ballot that are novella length, things that might take two episodes, sometimes maybe even three or four episodes. We're going to start to, to get into some some more breadth and, and even some more depth, I think, of what weird fiction is. And that's something I'm really excited about. I, mean, I think if you know some random person on the street just asked me to name sort of my five favorite weird fiction stories, they're almost all going to be novellas. Even the two I picked in this episode from 2019 <laughs> were novellas. It is a novella-rich genre, and we didn't really get fair distribution of that in 2019 because we just wanted to hit so many more authors. But 2020, it's going to be the year of the novella, I guess. It's a lot of fun. And we have a lot of fun covering novellas over on the Gene Wolf Literary Podcast. As you've said, Glenn, they're just richer. There's a lot more to dig into. And we often take two episodes, sometimes three, to go through a novella just because we like to get deep into it. And it's a lot of fun. So I'm looking forward to reading more weird fiction and horror novellas in 2020 as well. I really can't wait. Yeah. And even as we speak, there is the November 2019 poll is out that we have not seen the results of it yet. Though, of course, listeners now can find that on the, the website. And there were at least two, I might have even put three novellas actually on that poll. So we'll see, we'll see how that turns out. But also looking ahead, not just in terms of opening us up to novellas, and it's not going to be only novellas, but we're now opening that up. We're also going to have at least one more bonus episode, a commissioned episode on a special topic. This special topic was weird fiction in tabletop role-playing games. That's going to be out in May. That's going to be really exciting. And of course, we would love to do more bonus episodes as well. 
If you're interested in commissioning an episode, uh, you can check us out on Patreon and see uh, what the pathway is to doing that. You could also email uh, us at Clay Temple Media, and uh, maybe you can ask a question on the forum or, or, or send us an email, and we'll happily answer how you can get the story you want us to cover on the air. We love doing bonus episodes and commission episodes. It's so much fun. It often exposes us to writers we would not have otherwise read. And so it's a real treat uh, when somebody is passionate enough about a story or a writer and commissions us to do it. We love to share that with you as the hosts of this show. So with that in mind, that's going to do it for this episode. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought about our first year on the air with Elder Sign. What were your favorite stories? What were some of your favorite passages? What did you think about the themes and motifs of madness? Did we miss any major themes and motifs in the other <laughs> stories we didn't talk about? Uh, just come on over to the forum and talk to us about the year in review. We'd love to hear from you. All right. Well, Brandon, that is it for 2019 for us. Uh, As we always do, the network is going to take a break for the holidays. So Elder Sign will be back on January 14th with the obscure medical history of the 20th century by Stephen Chapman. And in the meantime, we'd really love it if you checked out some of our other shows on the network. If you haven't done that already, the holiday break is a great opportunity to read Gene Wolfe's masterpiece novel, The Fifth Head of Cerberus, and then go binge the 40 or so episodes that we did on it. I mean, especially if you're driving cross country to see your family, we'd love to keep you company uh, in that capacity as well. It's also a great time to join us on Patreon. You'll be just in time for our annual Connie Willis science fiction Christmas story episode. This is something we started doing last year. She has, I think, two collections of Christmas stories. Last year, we did Miracle, which was the first one in the collection we're reading through. This year, we're doing the second story in that collection. It's called in. Uh, I'm really excited about this. I loved Miracle. Turns out maybe I really like rom-com fiction. Not the movie so much, but the two rom-com stories we've covered in the past year I've really liked. And Miracle was one. It's a Christmas rom-com involving Santa Claus being real. Uh, And the other one was the With the Girl with the Gray Eyes by William Hope Hodgson. But I don't think In is a rom-com. But Connie Willis is a great writer. I'm so excited about doing this story. I can't even tell you. Um, But that will only be available to you if you support us on Patreon. So until 2020, we greet you and say farewell.